Morning, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Sunday Morning Live. I'm your host, Aaron Tomlinson. Thank you for joining me for this. Whether you're watching live or by replay, I am on an hour earlier than usual today because today is Father's Day. So we have some plans for the day. Um, I thought about just skipping, but I didn't want to. I've been more consistent than I have been in the last few years doing these Sunday morning lives. Um, I enjoy doing them. I get a lot of good feedback on them. So on a little bit early, so we'll see if anybody jumps on and is able to catch it. If not, hopefully you're able to catch it at its usual time uh, and catch it by replay. So today I want to talk about something. <clears throat> I want to talk about human potential and occult powers, human potential and occult powers. Now, that might be shocking. <laughs> that might just even be a shocking title for some people that know me or have followed the channel or watched these Sunday Morning Live videos for a while or maybe not. Um, so one of the things I want to do is define what it means, occult powers, what human potential is. And I also want to bring together some things that I've been talking about in my last few live videos about uh, being left brain dominant and uh, scientific materialism versus idealism and where that leaves us as human beings and what uh, that means to us in terms of the future of humanity and also what it can mean if we understand the development of human potential within the context of occult powers. So let me just just tell you where I got the idea for this. We were watching, uh, one of the things we're going to do today is go see the new DC movie out that's called The Flash. And so this weekend we were trying to catch up on whatever we need to know about uh, the DC universe before we go see this movie to make sure that it makes sense. And so uh, it got me thinking about, uh, we, we watched the Justice League, and the Justice League got me thinking about uh DC Comics and Marvel Comics, and one of the things that I I did when I was younger, because I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, right, when uh, we didn't have all this technology and we, we only had three stations, I, I guess four stations if you count PBS, and then later, you know, Fox came along at some point. And then when I got older into high school, we had uh, satellite TV and so, you know, HBO and Cinemax. But before all that, uh, trying to keep yourself entertained, trying to keep yourself busy. So one of the things that I really got into when I was little and in elementary school was comic strips. And I really got into the, the superhero comics, the DC and Marvel superhero comics. And... <clears throat> So uh by really getting into it, it means that I, uh, <laughs> like everything else I do that I'm interested in, I dove in pretty deep. And so I was very familiar with DC Comics and the early versions, like the early Superman story. And it, it, it's interesting because I've been reading a book by uh, Whitley Strieber and Jeffrey Kripal called The Supernatural. And the approach that they take in the book towards the supernatural is really interesting. And Jeffrey Kripal, who sits on the uh, uh, College of Humanities at Rice University, one of the things that he talks about in one of the chapters is these myths that humanity creates, these myths that we live by. Now, when we're talking about myth, we're talking about stories that, 
that we that impact us, that point to our human potential, stories that speak to us about our humanity, about our human experience. So it's more than just like a, a fairy tale or a fictional or a made-up story, but it's something that speaks to us in the context of our lives that gives us meaning. It's the stories that we live by, the myths or mythos that we live by. And he talks about how modern-day myth is the superhero. He talks about the, the Marvel, the explosion of the Marvel movies and superhero movies, and, of course, takes it all the way back to the comic books and kind of talks about how that's, the myth that we are creating. And he's making the point that perhaps ancient people did not believe in their myths uh, in the way that we think that they did, that maybe they understood that they were creating myth in much the same way that we create superheroes. But nevertheless, I, I saw something interesting last night when I was thinking about this. And we were watching uh, the Justice League, you know, the long version, the Snyder version of the Justice League. <laughs> Because most people erroneously believe that Superman, who was created, I think, I want to say in like 1937 by, uh, uh, I think Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, that he was the original superhero, that Superman was the original superhero. But in fact, uh, Siegel and Schuster had created a superhero that precedes, or the, Superman by uh, at least a decade or so. And so the very first superhero that came out in comic strips was a superhero named Dr. Occult or Dr. Mystic. He went by both Dr. Mystic or Dr. Occult. And Dr. Occult was a private investigator who had developed occult powers and so had the powers of astral projection and telekinesis and telepathy. Really, Dr. Strange in the Marvel Universe was taken off of the original character in DC of Dr. Occult. In other words, he was a, a, a sort of a Marvel version of Dr. Occult. And I think it's interesting that this happened around the 1930s, 1940s, because as I've been studying and looking at philosophy and looking at life in the light of philosophy and the light of what I've talked about in previous videos, in the light of scientific materialism versus idealism, uh, it's right about this time with these superheroes that we see a major shift in the predominant paradigm among intellectuals in the Western world. And that shift is a shift from romanticism and a shift from idealism to scientific materialism. Now, romanticism was kind of a, was a pushback against religious, religion and religious oppression that wanted to celebrate what it meant to be human. And celebrating what it means to be human from the standpoint of the emotions and erotic desires and basically pushing back philosophically and practically. So uh, against the oppression of religion. And so out of romanticism came a lot of uh, a celebration of the sensual, a ce celebration of the artistic, a celebration of the emotions. So you have poetry and you have literature and you have art and you have 
uh, again, uh, a, a real pushback against the sort of erotic suppression of the Victorian age, right? But really idealism in the West was a predominant philosophical view up until the early to middle part of the 20th century. And then it was just completely thrown out in favor of scientific materialism. And so we see this in the comic strips. It was something that I realized that I was seeing in the comic strips and the superheroes that the earliest superhero in the comic to make the comic books and comic strips was this guy named Dr. Occult who developed these mystical, magical powers that he used uh, to be a private investigator or a detective. And he used it to solve mysteries that were involved that, that involved paranormal uh, encounters, so haunted houses, you think about that kind of stuff. And it's, it's also interesting that Dion Fortune, many of you probably never heard of Dion Fortune, but she was a writer around that same time period who was a member of the Golden Dawn, the occult order, uh, called the Golden Dawn. Of, of which there were some really famous people who belonged to the Golden Dawn, William Yates being one of them. Bram Stoker was a member of the Golden Dawn. And probably the most famous or infamous member of the Golden Dawn around that same time period was Aleister Crowley. And for those of you who don't know what the Golden Dawn, the Golden Dawn was, was or is, the Golden Dawn was an occult order. It was a, an order of ceremonial magic that was dedicated to developing the human potential for occult powers, the human potential for mystical experiences, and things like that. And Dion Fortune was one of the prominent members and leaders who later split off with her own occult order of ceremonial magic. But anyway, all that to say, she wrote a series of detective stories about a character that she created called Dr. Tavner. And you can still get those today. Uh, there's a compilation of those short stories in a book called The Secrets of Dr. Tavner. Now, what's about Dr. Tavner is it's the same concept as Dr. Occult. It's someone who works in a psychiatric hospital. Dr. Tavner worked in a psychiatric hospital. And he wasn't investigating things from a detective perspective, but he was investigating things from the perspective of trying to bring healing to these really difficult psychiatric cases using his occult knowledge and his occult powers. Now, Dion Fortune claims that Dr. Tavner and the stories in there, while they're published as fiction, they are based upon a real character living in London at the time of the writing who was her mentor, who was named Dr. Moriarty. Now, some of you may be familiar with Moriarty from the Sherlock Holmes uh, literature as being the, you know, the, the, the nemesis, the, the, the Lex Luthor to Superman, right? The, uh, doc, uh, Dr. Moriarty was like, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Lex Luthor, right? And it's been speculated because there was a contention between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and people like Dion Fortune and the Golden Dawn, because there was almost like this spiritual competing that was going on in England in those days between 
the spiritualist movement, which was about contacting the dead and seances and psychic abilities and things like that, and the orders that were teaching ceremonial magic. And so it's very possible that Dr. Moriarty then became the template or became the, 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 the name of the character that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle picked because of this sort of internal competition and, and battle and things got really ugly in there. But my point is, my point is that there was a time period not too long ago where the development of human potential in this sense of occult powers was being explored and being celebrated. There were universities like Harvard and Yale and Oxford that were doing studies in parapsychology. They were doing studies with telepathy, with telekinesis and things of, things like that. And the narrative out there is that they did not get significant results exploring these things in these scientific studies. But the truth is more uh, probably like suppression. In other words, we're shifting into the scientific materialism. And so all this other stuff is just nonsense. All this other stuff is just phony. It's just fairy tales. And, of course, about the same time you had Harry Houdini come around and other stage magicians who were out exposing frauds, people who were pretending to have occult powers, pretending to be psychic, pretending to perform seances and stuff in order to grift people out money. And Harry Houdini and these stage musicians, stage magicians, (laughs) I still haven't finished my first cup of coffee. These stage magicians were exposing uh, these things as frauds. And so, again, it becomes lumped in. And one of the things you're going to see as I talk about this stuff is you're going to find that we have a tendency when it comes to these things to slip into what psychologists and counselors call a cognitive error, a cognitive distortion of all or nothing thinking. All or nothing thinking. I'm just going to drop that in there. But let's come, let's come back to the comic strips for a minute and then I'll talk about what I'm talking about, what I mean when I talk about occult powers and human potential. And where are we with that? And where's the possible and potential future for that? But before I define all that, let me come back to the comic strips because you'll notice an interesting shift. The first superhero that was created was a person who had developed and had spent, his backstory was he had spent something like 37 years developing these occult powers and these occult abilities until he became very proficient at them. And then he puts them in, in the service of doing detective work and solving crimes. Superman, Superman's abilities are superhuman because he's not human. He's from the planet Krypton. And the planet Krypton had a red sun, and the planet Krypton had a heavier uh, pull of gravity. There was different molecular structure and density to his body, and Krypton's about to be destroyed, so his father, Jarrell puts him in this spaceship and sends him to planet earth because he had determined that planet earth was a place that could sustain life. So now we don't have anything occult. We don't have anything mystical. We have 
strictly a materialist explanation, albeit a mythical one, but a mythical explanation for Superman's powers that fits strictly within the scientific materialist paradigm. He has superpowers because he comes from the planet Krypton. And this started a total trend in the superhero lore or the mythos of superheroes that we live with today. So just casually trying to think of every other superhero I could think of, um, you know, Batman doesn't have any superhuman powers. Batman just has unlimited resources. He's a very smart individual, much like a Sherlock Holmes. He's a very skilled fighter. And he has access to resources. So he, Batman and Robin are using technology to emulate or, uh, <clears throat> yeah, to produce the results that they're getting. Their, their supernatural powers and abilities. Um, you've got, let's see, uh, Spider-Man gets bit by a uh, radioactive spider. And he's a scientist, uh, Barry Allen has a, you know, gets his powers through science. The Incredible Hulk gets his powers through scientific studies and too much gamma, <laughs> too much gamma radiation or something in his body that responds differently to gamma radiation than the average person. And so he becomes the Incredible Hulk. So I, I think you get the point. This mythos of the super uh, hero, this mythos of human potential to break out of our normal human limitations is all being supplied to us through the means in these stories, through the means of scientific materialism. Now, I'm bringing this out for a couple of reasons. I'm bringing this out to show the shift that took place, but I'm also bringing this out to show you how we are very subtly uh, indoctrinated. It's very subtle indoctrination that in the West, we have been subtly indoctrinated into the philosophy of scientific materialism in much the same way that people are indoctrinated into communism or people are indoctrinated into religion, because it's not only coming at us through direct messaging, but it's coming at us through subliminal messaging as well. And the comic strips and the superheroes are a perfect example of this subliminal messaging that's coming to us. Now, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. It seems like I ruffle everybody's feathers. It'd be nice if uh, we wouldn't be so touchy <laughs> uh, <clears throat> out there with stuff that if we hear the slightest thing that contradicts something that we believe or hold dear, that we become super offended. But it, it's interesting because another group that I'm looking at is uh, a, a academic research group, and I forget the name right now or I'd give it to you, but they broke off from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was started by the astronaut um, Edgar Mitchell. And they have just completed, within the last couple of years, the largest survey and scientific studies on people who report alien abductions. And 
through their study, and it's the largest of its kind, there's never been an undertaking like it before, and they're looking at it not through the lens of skeptics, but just through the lens of reports and experiences and what they have in common, what they share, what they have in common. Interestingly enough, they have some scholars, religious scholars, Jeffrey Kripal, who I mentioned earlier, uh, serves as one of the contributing thinkers in this organization. And one of the things that they've discovered is that a lot of alien abductions have enough in common with mystical experiences that the person who headed up the study was confident enough to make the statement that when we look at alien abductions, we're not necessarily looking at something that, how do I say this, that would have the same components of reality as any other kind of abduction we might think about or kidnapping that we might think about. But it really has these mystical sort of astral and other dimensional components to almost all of them. And so he concludes in an interview that I saw, the guy that led the study, a guy named Ray Hernandez, He concludes that we have misunderstood the alien phenomenon, the UFO or UAP phenomenon, as being something that's strictly material. In other words, what's being postulated at the forefront of the UFO community now is that these entities, whatever they are, even these objects that we see flying in the sky, are not traveling from the farthest reaches of the universe in a scientific material sense, but they are using... um, consciousness as an aspect of the manifestation of their reality. I don't want to go too deeply into that because I can't speak with a lot of assurance about that, but I just find it really, really interesting. And one of the things that I find interesting is that people who are studying specifically where where does consciousness come from uh, are, are, are using the paradigm, the framework of scientific materialism, and they're almost deconstructing out of it. It's not that much different in some ways. I mean, it's a lot different, but there are some some similarities between people like myself who really dove into religion, really dove into Christianity and all of these things. And then the more we studied Christianity, the more we looked at it, the more we analyzed it, the more that it fell apart, the more that it fell apart. And so there's people out there like Bernardo Castro, uh, people out there like Dr. Donald Hoffman, those are the two that I've studied the most and probably the two that speak the best to lay people on these issues who, by using and looking at consciousness from the perspective of scientific materialism, are saying not only is does it seem to them that scientific materialism cannot explain consciousness, but also that scientific materialism itself is very deconstructible. And I find this interesting because a lot of people who move from religion to atheism without realizing it go into the philosophy of scientific materialism, even if they deny it. And I'll get into that in a minute because I want to, I want to re- relay some of that out. Um, <clears throat> 
So it's this this study of of consciousness, this thing that they can't explain. And so uh, the, you know there are quantum physicists out there. There are PhD level, uh, PhD level <laughs> co- uh, astrophysicists out there, cosmologists out there. People that are studying the brain, people that are studying things like psychedelic experiences and near-death experiences, as well as someone like Dr. Hoffman, who's simply studying the uh, science of perception. Uh, Bernardo Castro, who has two PhDs, one in who worked at CERN with his first PhD in computer science and then went back and got a PhD in philosophy. And I think he has a lot to contribute to the conversation. And I've gleaned a lot from him in the last few weeks. He's written a book called, called Why Materialism is Baloney uh, and has a bunch of videos out there. If you don't want to read a book, it's pretty heavy reading. Uh, if you don't want to read that, you can go out and look him up on YouTube and find interviews and stuff like that. Dr. Donald Hoffman has written a book called The Case Against Reality. There's another author out there. I, I forget his name right now. Um, I think I believe he's a Scottish uh, researcher. And he's a neuroscientist, and he's written a book called The Master and His Emissary. And what's interesting about The Master and His Emissary <clears throat> is that he does the deepest dive by far, into the study of the differences between the left hemisphere of the brain or the left hemisphere of the neurocortex and the right hemisphere of the brain. And I did a video on my YouTube channel called uh, What Happens When Logic Becomes Lord, and that's gleaned from this massive, massive 20-year meta-analysis of all the research. I think he used something like 3,000 research studies and articles and did a huge meta-analysis. And a meta-analysis, for people that don't know, he looked at all the literature, read all the literature, and then draws conclusions uh, out of what he learned from reading these studies and then puts forth his hypothesis. That's called a meta-analysis. So he did a meta-analysis of everything that's ever been done on the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, and he wrote this massive book uh, called The Master and His Emissary, and really demonstrates that what we think we know about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain, and when I say we, I mean the average person, what we think and what we're taught, and if you Google it, what does it mean to be left brain dominant, what does it mean to be right brain dominant, if you Google all that stuff, uh, the, the lists that you get, everything that comes up, None of that's true. In fact, neuroscientists left that ship decades ago uh, and had determined there was no difference between the left hemisphere and right hemisphere in terms of its function. But then as they did more research and as it's brought out in this book, The Master and His Emissary, there are very distinct differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. But it has nothing to do with what we think. But it does have to do with these philosophies of scientific materialism and idealism. So my point is with the comic strips and stuff that we are indoctrinated in very subtle ways into a worldview that says everything that's out there, this is the worldview of materialism, everything that's out there is made of stuff. And this stuff is observable, measurable, and that's it. People talk about observable, observable, measurable, and repeatable. The repeatability comes more in the cause and effect, more in how the stuff of what everything is made of interacts. So science doesn't tell us what is out there. Science tells us how what is out there behaves. 
And if we can figure out how it behaves, then we and we can set up uh, uh, we, we can show in a laboratory or through mathematical uh, computations or something that these interactions, these processes are repeatable. Now we're talking about the behavior of what's out there, not the nature of what's out there. So the problem with scientific materialism is that science is studying the processes. It's studying the behaviors. It's studying the interactions. But it's beginning with a dogmatic framework that is rooted not in science at all, but rooted in philosophy that says everything that's out there is measurable or everything that's out there is quantifiable. It can be measured in time and space. It has kilograms. It has inches. It has whatever. Right. But that's the presupposition of materialism, of the philosophy of materialism. And what the the problem with that is that as human beings, 100 percent of our experience takes place in consciousness, 100 percent of it. If you want to go back to, to Rene Descartes, and I know I'm throwing a lot of names out at you, but I'm just trying to demonstrate. I'm not trying to show that I'm smart or anything like that. I'm just trying to say that these are not just my ideas. Because if I just jump on here and say, these are just my ideas, then we're back to, you know, (laughs) another form of religion or something. So I'm just trying to, you know, help. I'm trying to think these things through. And as I'm thinking these things through, I'm trying to help you think. So it has nothing to do with me trying to show that I'm smart or whatever. Um, I I hope you you get where I'm coming from with that. But Rene Descartes was another philosopher, and he – in the way he was thinking through the nature of reality, he postulates this idea that everything exists. The only thing we can be certain about is that we think. I think, therefore, I am. In other words, the only thing that I can be sure of, absolutely sure of, is that I exist as a unit of consciousness. So the interesting thing about scientific materialism is that it has absolutely no explanation for consciousness and as Bernardo Castro points out, I think this is very simple, a very simple point. But when we're talking about things that are measurable, a synonym, a word that also means measurable, is quantifiable. And when we're dealing with something that's measurable or quantifiable, we're dealing with quantities. We're not dealing with qualities. And the nature of consciousness has a lot to do with the quality of our experience, not just the quantity of it, not just the measurable parts of it. And so Bernardo Castro says, you know, very bold-facedly that materialism can't solve the problem of consciousness because they're two totally different things. But now what's really interesting is that where some of these guys that are doing these studies, where they're ending up at, is they're ending up back at idealism and they're saying, no, the nature of reality, the nature of reality, not the behavior of reality. I want to emphasize that again. Science dictates or studies in laboratories. This is where the repeatable comes in. Observable, measurable, repeatable. The repeatable comes in because science studies the behavior of the stuff that's out there. doesn't necessarily tell us what the stuff is that's out there. And, So what what a lot of these thought leaders are saying is that what the world is actually made of is the stuff of consciousness, that it's all mind, 
that it's all consciousness. And that what we see or perceive as measurable and quantifiable is a byproduct of consciousness. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because if scientific materialism is the way it is, then there's no point in talking about occult things or occult powers or occult powers and human potential and the things that reside within us. So what is the occult? What am I talking about? When, when most people, again, just like with the right hemisphere and the le- or left hemisphere, right hemisphere of the brain, people have a false understanding of what that means and what that is and how that works. In the same way, especially among Christians, but probably among most people, the idea of the occult has to do with something evil, something wicked, something satanic, something involving demons, something involving superstition and things of this nature. But the word occult itself actually comes from the root word of ocular. And ocular has to do with what is seen, what is perceived, what can be measurable, what can be observable. It goes to the to the first principle, the key fundamental principle of scientific materialism. It has to be observable. If it's not observable, it can't be measurable. And so occult has to do with things that are not observable to our normal waking perceptions. So all the word occult means is it means that which is hidden or that which is not observable. That which exists in hidden realms. So occultism, the study of the occult, does not have to lead you into, you know, a coven where you're dressing in black robes and chanting and making potions and putting curses or dancing around skyclad at moonlight or um, certainly not worshiping Satan and harming children and all the stuff that's out there with the satanic panic and the revived satanic panic due to QAnon craziness and all the stuff that's out there. The occult is simply the study of that which is hidden from our senses, that which may exist, but which is hidden from normal perceptions. So when you're talking about life after death, you're talking about an occult topic. When you're talking about the reality of ghosts or spirits, you're talking about an occult topic. If you're talking about other dimensions, so in this sense, ufology and alien abductions could possibly fit into the category of the study of the occult. Um, but then you're also talking about what's hidden within us, what's what's hidden within our consciousness. Um, yeah, I just saw Jimmy uh, on the comments. He says uh, African spirituality and shamanism encompasses that. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, shamanism and African spirituality, which are, you know, I, I would put a lot of African spirituality within the context, the, the greater context of shamanism in that all these cultures that have existed since forever had shamanic principles in their tribes or in their people groups and in their cultures. And a lot of the principles of shamanism are consistent across the world 
and across the timeline, even though these people had never gotten together and become indoctrinated with them. And so that to me carries, carries a lot of weight because it wasn't an organized religion. It was humanity trying to figure out humanity, but not by going without. And here's the key difference then when I, when I get to the, what I said the topic would be, which is occultism and human potential. Because the development of these abilities in shamanic cultures comes about not by going without, but by going within. And that's the key fundamental difference to me that I find so fascinating between scientific materialism and idealism. Idealism is the philosophical framework that says mind is the basic component of the universe. Consciousness, mind, is the basic component. And it's separate, in some sense, from what we call matter or materialism. So it's not the brain. And it's funny that people with just a little bit of knowledge, I remember, you know, you, you know how it's like a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little bit of truth is a dangerous thing. You have just enough truth to make you dangerous. That's kind of what happened with the bifurcation between the left brain and the right brain. We believe all kinds of crazy stuff about that now because people had just enough truth and didn't know what they didn't know. And they ran with it and it became popular culturally. So if we talk about everything in human potential, as it relates to consciousness, as it relates to maybe even things like telepathy or telekinesis or astral projection or things like this, or healing or shamanic practices and journeys, what what we end up doing is we're saying that's all in the brain. So there's another myth out there that you only use 10 or 15% of your brain and the rest of it lies dormant. That's complete bullshit. Um, nobody believes that or thinks that anymore. Um, but this idea with that movie Lucy, right? Like just got full use of the brain and because she had full use of the brain, that's materialism. That's consciousness. That, that what that's saying is, is that the brain is what produces consciousness. But the more studies that are done on consciousness in the brain, the more it seems that it's being proven that that is not the case. One of the, Best case studies for that that they have is brain scans that they've done on people who do psychedelics, who go on these really fantastic psychedelic trips. Based on the materialist model of the brain and that the brain produces consciousness, the hypothesis would be that because people who take psychedelics are experiencing a sensual reality, in other words, they're sensing uh images and things and hallucinations and having other experiences and feelings and even hearing things and whatever, maybe even smelling and tasting things that other people who didn't take the psychedelics are not experiencing, then the hypothesis should be that the substance is unlocking stuff inside the brain and the brain is becoming more active and that's what's producing these experiences. But studies show the exact opposite. Studies show that what these psychedelics do in the brain is not make them hyperactive, make the brain hyperactive and activate parts of the brain that aren't working before. It does the exact opposite. It actually really subdues brain activity to the point that it's the closest that they've been able to observe to being brain dead. It's, In other words, what they would say is that 
the closest that we get to death, like, like taking psychedelics is as close to death as we can get, which then also lends credibility to people who remember near death experiences and come back where the brain is completely shut down. Uh, Dr. Eben Alexander is a perfect example out there of a neurosurgeon and an atheist who's, who died from meningitis. Um, and then they were able to revive him. But while he was in a coma, his brain was completely shut down because the bacteria had eaten away and destroyed the aspects of the brain that would produce these experiences. And yet while he's out of his body, he's having all these amazing and wonderful and not so wonderful experiences. So it'd be interesting to go out and look at that. So my point is when I'm talking about developing occult powers and the future of human potential, what I'm talking about is a development that comes again, not by going without, but by going within and not by going within to try to activate parts of the brain. Cause that's just materialism. That's just saying that our thoughts are the byproduct of this organic and biological tissue that's in our skulls. <laughs> but going back to mysticism, going back to meditation um, and developing a science. In other words, there can be an occult science. In other words, there can be an occult study of what's hidden in the depths of our being. Now, you guys have heard me talk a lot on here about, especially lately, about experiences that we had uh, that I had as a Christian, synchronicities, miracles, financial miracles that would show up specific amounts at specific times, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Just the financial realm, I can think of just I've forgotten more testimonies and stories of synchronicities and seeming miracles financially that happened that either we participated in as the giver or we received as the receiver. Like I can tell you tons of stories about people that we felt an internal impression to give money to them. And we would get a specific amount. I can think of three right off the top of my head. But again, I don't like telling stories that involve other people and their finances without their permission. But I can think of three right off the top of my head where whatever that was that spoke, the Holy Spirit, back then we said it was God. We said it was the Lord. I would say the Lord spoke to me this amount. My uh, <clears throat> board of directors at the time will tell you that I went to them after a mission trip and I said, we're supposed to give this specific amount of money. And it was a substantial amount of money to this particular missionary couple over in Eastern Europe. And that the Lord had promised me a, that we would receive based on the principles of giving and receiving. And I don't want to trigger people or make you think that I was a shyster or a charlatan. If, if Roger jumps on here, he'll remember You'll remember this, I'm sure, because Roger was on our board at the time. Jeanette, if she's on here, she might remember this. She wasn't on our board, but it was part of our church. So we gave the largest donation to a missions organization that we had ever given. And when I called the guy up, um, we didn't have any contact. We didn't have any relationship. It was just something that I felt impressed to do in my psyche. When I called him up, he was believing God for that exact amount of money exact amount of money so that he could purchase 
a like a bus, I think, or a van, so that they could do um, some charitable works that they were doing. It would empower them to um, help address some of the poverty among children in that part of the world. And it was exactly the amount that he needed. And, in fact, after the fact, I went to his website, and I saw where he was asking for donations for that amount of money and so he could buy that so that he could do what he was going to do. So we had the privilege of being able to supply him with that. Now, I had no natural means of knowing that. I I mean, how did I get... Because, again, this wasn't somebody I had a relationship with. This was somebody I knew about but hadn't thought about in 15 years, probably. So why would I internally and intuitively think about this person, think about a specific amount of money at the specific time frame in which he was needing it? And then within the time frame that I had said, I said, if we do this, then, yeah, it's going to hurt us, but... As a result of that, sowing and reaping, giving and receiving, this amount of money will come back, which will be multiplied that many times over. And I'll never forget uh, just, uh, uh, yeah, like a month or so after that, we used to have prayer before um, church, and we would just kind of do this general sort of prayer. And this one particular Sunday, I had this impression that we needed to pray over the offering, not so that more would come in, but that so that we, we would just pray blessing over the people who were giving into the offering. And a man walks into our church that did not attend our church, knew about our church, had some relatives that attended there, but did not attend our church, was not part of our vision or mission, and knew nothing about what we were doing or what had been said, knew nothing. And he walked in with tears and he said, he said, the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he handed me a check for $70,000, which was more than twice the amount that we had given. And then within the time frame that we had set, uh, all the rest of the money to the exact dollar amount that I said would come in in donations came in above and beyond our normal tithes and offerings. And it gave us enough money to pay off all the debt. For the ministry, that's just one example. I could tell you ten off the top of my head, and for every one that I tell, I've probably forgotten two or three. That's just a good example because that's an example of being a part of someone else's synchronicity or miracle and receiving our own synchronicity and miracle. And I just find it interesting that we decide to pray for people who are giving in the offering on the very Sunday that the man walks in, hands me a check, and walks out. Uh, and that was my life. That, th- this isn't a four or five time uh, lifetime thing. This was a very repeatable experience in my life, and that's just in the area of finances. I could tell you the same thing in the area of health and miracles and things like that. But all that to say, and I'm, and I know I'm taking a real risk here because I'm either looking like I'm bragging or I'm turning off part of the audience. I'm definitely losing the scientific materialists. And here's what bothers me, guys. I'm, I'm fine if you're a scientific materialist, but here's, I want you to think about this. I am sharing with you authentic experiences. I'm sharing with you authentic experiences that I cannot explain. I'm sharing with you authentic experiences and saying, I don't believe it was Jehovah God of the Bible 
who orchestrated these experiences or had these things happen for us. I'm not trying to use this as proof for a religious doctrine or as proof for a belief in God. I'm simply sharing, hey, this is my life experience, and I have to try to make sense out of it. And people who do this all or nothing thing and go all the way over into scientific materialism, and say, logic has to do it. Everything that's, it's measurable, it's repeatable, and you're just repeating stuff. But what you're doing without realizing it is that you're diminishing people like myself. And I'm not the only one that's had these experiences by any means. There, the, 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 people have had these experiences, whether they be synchronicities, whether they attribute it to the law of attraction, whether it be encounters with uh, ghosts or poltergeists or UFO abductions like we talked about earlier or, or just weird experiences that they can't explain coming into intuitive knowledge that they can't explain. My children experience those things. Uh, but what happens is it just gets diminished. It just, it just gets passed over. It's just like, ah. Can't make that happen every time in a scientific laboratory, so F that stuff, and we're just not even going to think about it, and eventually science will figure it out. Guys, that's demeaning. I mean, that's devaluing. It's dishonoring. So I just want to share that from my perspective and say, let's let's respect this, right? Like, let's respect this. Unless you just think I'm a total phony and I'm a total liar and everybody else like me, you know, uh, then fine. Just do that, that's fine. <laughs> but, uh, if another option, another choice might be to have more dialogue, to have more humility, to be a little bit less dogmatic and to say, hey, but here's, I'm, I'm going even further with this. I'm saying, can we, by going back and looking at spiritual paths, magical systems, forms of meditation, and by going within, can we uncover some of these occult powers? One thing I was going to say, one thing I'm sure of, absolutely sure of, in all these experiences, the synchronicities, the miracles, the financial miracles, the healings, all that stuff, one thing I can guarantee, and anyone that was part of our church that's still watching, you know, put something in the comments because you can validate this. The one thing that we, that was a key, the key that unlocked this stuff was not praying to God. It was not fasting. It was not reading the Bible. It was not walking around making positive confessions. It wasn't using the name of Jesus. It wasn't any of that stuff. In fact, when we did all that stuff, we didn't see results. It, it, it came, it came about because I discovered a mystical language, an occult language. I'm going to say it that way. I discovered an occult language inside of the Bible itself that said all this stuff is locked up inside of you. All this power, all this ability, all this potential is locked up inside of you. Ephesians 3.20, now to God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all we can think or ask according to the power that's working in you. Colossians 1.27, the glory of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. 
So in other words, this realization and this discovery that yes, came out of scripture, that it's not God outside of us doing something, but it's that, that there has been hidden within us and tucked away within us a tremendous amount of potential a tremendous amount of magical power, if you will, but it's hidden from us. It's You don't access it through your normal waking state of consciousness. But if you go within, if you go within, you can discover and develop these areas of intuition. You can discover and develop these abilities. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, one of the reasons that parapsychology became dismissed as serious scientific study in the middle part of the last century. One of the reasons it got dismissed early on is because they were just taking an average person and trying to test for uh, telepathic abilities. So in other words, they would have cards that were various different colors, usually 10 cards with 10 different colors, and they would look at one and they would try to send telepathically to the other person the color they were looking at. And they just kind of picked people who had had some of these experiences, but they didn't necessarily have a group of people. It wasn't sophisticated in the sense that we have a controlled study of people who have spent years and decades developing these abilities. And then we have another group over here who stumbled into these abilities. And then we have a control group over here that doesn't have any of these abilities, and we make statistical comparisons. Like, to the best of my knowledge, the studies that were done early on weren't constructed that way. So it was kind of foolishly handled in the sense that uh, there was not appreciation for the fact that these abilities may be residing within us, but they may require a certain amount of development before we can test them. So I'm going to have to quit because it's Father's Day. Again, if you're jumping on late, happy Father's Day. If you stayed with me, thank you so much for watching. If you have questions, put it in the comments. Um, I really don't want to take the time because I went over my time limit. Uh, but it looks like there were some awesome comments in here. Thank you guys for commenting. Again, if you want to support our work, if you like what we're doing, you can support our work. We still uh, oversee a nonprofit ministry. i got to figure out a different term for that, but it is a ministry. Um, it is uh, the ministry that we started when we were, you know, in our 30s. Um, legitimate 501c3. If you want to make a donation and help us make a donation to the ministry, money does not come to me. There's a board of directors that oversees the stewardship of that, makes decisions about that of people that have high integrity that I really love and trust. Um, then you can see the PayPal link there. And again, any donation, any kind of monthly commitment or monthly donation will really help us uh, delve more into this and bring better content and more frequent content to you guys. So again, thank you. Thanks for watching. Thanks for putting up with me, uh, putting questions out there. And I hope this was a beneficial experience for you. Thank you.